We're going to be back in Matthew, so um, it's kind of narrative-based again. Um, and we've got some cool new branding, courtesy of Gaz. It's good, isn't it? Oh, I, I think it's cool. Because um, the one before I had made on PowerPoint, so this is like proper like graphic design stuff. So it's, it's obviously going to be better. I'd love for you to grab a Bible if you haven't got one. I don't mind if it's on your smartphone, um, as long as you're not playing Angry Birds. Um, Matthew 11, 1 through 16. I think when, when we're dealing with narrative and dealing with the stories of Jesus, it's really easy sometimes to get lost in the kind of the amount of stuff that's there. So it's really helpful to have it before you. Um, we haven't been in Matthew for a while. So if you're new or you haven't, you've been hearing us speak about other things. Matthew's been like our flagship series, if you like. We started it maybe in 2015 at a guess. I don't actually know when we started, but we've done 40 parts so far, which is why we're up to Matthew chapter 11. And it's entitled The Jesus Story, and that fits the bill here for chapter 11. Um, in chapter 10, just as by way of recap, because I've got to do this because it's been so long since we've been in it, the disciples have all been sent out already, so they've been sent out on their mission um, by Jesus. So at this point, Jesus is without his disciples, without his core group of followers. They're out in the world telling people about Jesus. We read in chapter 10, they've gone out, they're teaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they're healing the sick, they're raising the dead, they're cleansing lepers, they're casting out demons, they're doing Jesus stuff. And these are guys who are just ordinary fishermen, uh, there's a tax collector in there, um, they're just blokes. And yet they're out there doing this amazing stuff for Jesus. They're being relentless, they're being fearless, and although we, we hear that they have their doubts and they have their worries, they're still going out. They're still doing stuff for Jesus. And it, it's an interesting thing here that you see just in terms of church and how church works. Jesus sends out his disciples to go into the world. The disciples could quite easily have gone into a synagogue and started doing their own thing and wait for people to come to them, but they're not. They're out on the front lines taking the good news of Jesus to people all over the place. In the face of opposition and hatred, they crack on and they have a go for Jesus. And it just made me think, whatever we do, let's just have a go for Jesus. Whatever line of work we're in, whatever, um, whether we're, we, we don't work and we're full-time mum, full-time dad, whatever it might be, whether we're retired, whether we're a teenager and we're in school, there's so much we can do for God. And there's so much we can have a go for and actually start doing, continuing his mission. And that's what they're doing. They're meeting the physical needs of the people. People are being healed. People are being set free. But they're meeting the spiritual needs of the people as well as they're telling people of their need for Jesus. And Jesus is doing exactly the same thing. I actually think uh, 11 verse 1 should be at the end of chapter 10. Um, but... That's okay. The Bible commentators obviously know better than me. Um, and it reads this, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So that kind of almost concludes the section of the disciples have been sent out. And now Jesus continues on. Jesus is teaching and preaching and going from city to city. And then we read this. This is Matthew 11. I'm going to read from verse 2 to 6, and then I'm going to read the rest of it in a little while. It says this, Now when John, so that's John the Baptist, not John the writer of the Gospel of John. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. 
The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. So John, the Baptist, is in like under house arrest, if you like, is in prison uh, by a guy called Herod. And um, he's got lots of followers, people that have been kind of going out to hear the message of John the Baptist. And John sends two of these followers to go and find Jesus. Say, right, I want you to go and ask Jesus a couple of questions. Are you the long-awaited rescuer? Are you, Jesus, the one that's been foretold from before time? Are you the one we're waiting for to save us? Because if not, pal, I've got to find someone else. And I might not have a lot of time left. Spoiler alert, come to chapter 14, John's no longer with us. We'll get to that. It's a bit of a spoiler alert if you've never read through Matthew before. But he knows time is short. So he's sending word to Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one that's been prophesied? Have I got this right or have I got this wrong? And Jesus' response is great. Firstly, I want you to notice that he addresses John, even though they've been, it's the disciples that are there, because some people think John sends them for their benefit, that they would be able to encounter and meet Jesus, these disciples that maybe haven't before. And that might be true, but I think the fact that Jesus addresses John and says, tell John what you hear, tell John what you see. And I think this, and I might be wrong, but this is my kind of how I've read it anyway, is that I think John sat in prison thinking, huh, is it really him or is it not? Is there a possibility I might have got this wrong? I'd really like to know if this really is Jesus. Because maybe John's expectations haven't been met. You know, if I'm John the Baptist and, I, and you know, I've been having this amazing ministry and he's been pointing people to Jesus and seeing people put their trust in Jesus. He's there, he's baptizing Jesus. He's got this amazing ministry, this amazing man. And he's thinking, well, surely if Jesus is this amazing rescuer, why am I sat in prison? Maybe, maybe Jesus will come and get me. If I send word to him, maybe Jesus has forgotten me. I just wonder if John the Baptist's expectations of what this promised Messiah might look like is slightly different to what Jesus does. And so doubt perhaps starts to creep in. Maybe John starts to question, is this really it? And Jesus responds by actually saying, what you read in Isaiah 61, John, these prophecies, I'm fulfilling them. So he almost points John back and says, no, John, it's okay. It is really me. Read this. Look, Isaiah 61 basically is what Jesus references when he says, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, those with leprosy are being healed, the deaf are having their ears open, the dead are raised, the poor have good news to the uh, preach to them, and the kingdom advances. Jesus says, I am he that has been foretold. Don't worry, John. It's okay. It's me. You've got the right guy. The kingdom is advancing. And I don't know if you've ever been asked this. Um, it's one of the things that's come up on Alpha quite a bit. Is how do you know Jesus is the son of God? Most people, most people, unless they're being really kind of head in the sand like an ostrich, will admit that Jesus lived. That he was a real guy. This historical fact that verifies he walked the planet. Most people will actually agree that he was crucified. 
and that he died. And actually, when you look at the evidence for the resurrection, I'd say that's the strongest case as well versus all the other options. So there's a lot of kind of evidence here that this guy was a real guy and he lived. The debate comes around, how do you know he's the son of God or not? How do you know he's not just a great teacher and he was a, someone who brought great little sayings that we'd say 2,000 years later? And my response is always, well, Jesus never came primarily that we would... Uh, as a teacher, that wasn't his primary purpose. Yes, he taught us stuff. Yes, he showed us the way to live. But he came to rescue. He came to save. That was his purpose. That was his mission. And part of the advancement of the kingdom is what he says here. That lame will walk, the dead will be raised, the good news will be preached. There's this combination of a message and miracles. How do I know that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, he carried the message from God and he performed miracles that I've never seen anybody else do. And I doubt I will ever see anybody else do ever. He was a bit special with Jesus, wasn't he? He was a bit different. Fully God, fully man. And when you start seeing his kingdom come, you know he's the son of God. So when people come to faith in Jesus and you see a transformation in their life, nothing else can account for that other than that Jesus is the son of God. When somebody's healed miraculously and doctors are astonished, nothing can account for that other than that Jesus is the son of God. How do we know he is? Because of his miracles and his message. And that's what he says to John, I'm he. Look at my message. Look at my miracles. Look at my ministry. And then he says something in 11.6, which really intrigued me, because it almost doesn't seem to fit. And he says, after saying this really cool stuff about what's going on, and it's been really cool being part of RK and seeing God move in people's lives. It's great we've got a baptism service coming up because we're celebrating new life in Jesus. That's a great point to say amen, by the way. Let's do that. Let's have an amen on that that Jesus is saving people, that there's new life, is evidence the kingdom of God is advancing, that God is still breathing new life today. And then he says this, so cool stuff's happening, and then he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. That's what he says to John. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And you might think, well, John doesn't on the face of it seem to be offended by Jesus. John clearly loves Jesus, has a lot of time for him. But I think there was a bit of offense in as much as Jesus has to say that statement. Because in John's world, it would have looked different. In John's world, he may not have been locked up. In John's world, he might have still been out there at that time doing his stuff. And sometimes, reality doesn't meet our expectations. Sometimes. What we think is going to happen doesn't happen that our expectations are sometimes different to what God is doing. Like, I would never be sick if I could have it my way. I would never have problems with my body in different parts of it if I could have it my way. My expectation might be that I'll always be well. But actually, reality is something a little bit different to that. But it doesn't mean that God's forgotten us. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care. And it doesn't mean that he's not in control. I think here what Jesus is saying is, don't be offended at God if it doesn't work out how quite you want it to. God's plan is more important than our plan. Sometimes we don't see that. And we need to remember that the Bible, the thing you've got in front of you, is God's story. That's primarily what it is. It's God's story. It's not our story. It's God's and it's about us being caught up and partnering in God's story. We get brought into his story. 
So sometimes what we expect in our reality are going to be different things. And I think we need to come to a place where we can confidently say that whatever is going in on our life, that we want God's best for us. Even if that looks different to what we think our best is, that we want God's best. Now, sometimes that can be costly. Sometimes that can be confusing. But I think that's kind of what's going on here. I don't think John's faith has failed. I don't think he's thinking, this isn't Jesus. But I think it's a a testament that we all need encouragement, that we all need strengthening, that we all need help, that we all need pointing in the right direction. Sometimes that's us, isn't it? Sometimes we need reminding of the truth that God loves us. Sometimes we need encouraging because we're low. Even John the Baptist does. Even John the Baptist is like, Jesus, is it really you? I hope it is. I think it is. Is it really you? We need reminding of the truth. Even the great saints of the faith. Abraham, he doubted. Elijah, he ran away. He hid. Well, he tried to hide. He didn't do a very good job. Moses, he didn't think he could cut it. Gideon laid out a fleece. I mean, desperate measures. Like, all these people are like, God, I need to hear from you. I need strengthening. There's got to be something here because doubts creep in. And they do. And you know what's okay? Because doubts will creep into our life. There'll be moments where we're like, God, I really need you in this moment. I really need to see you. I really need to know that you're with me. And sometimes we have to be reminded, don't we, that God's good, that God loves us, that God has his best for us. Even when our expectations haven't been met. Even when it looks different to what we expected it to. And we need to see and we need to hear. And that's what Jesus says to John. Tell him what you hear. Tell him what you see. And that's why church is so good. That's why it's so good to be part of a church. Because we can hear things. We can see God moving. We can be reminded, we can almost recalibrate on that God loves us and it's okay. That God's with us, that we can sing songs like he goes before us. We have to come to that place time and again where we see and we hear Jesus. Which even John the Baptist there is imprisoned to see and to hear Jesus. And that answer seems to be enough for them because the disciples were told, wander off. I assume they go back to John, hopefully. But they disappear off and they leave Jesus with the crowds. And at this point, the crowds are already there. So Jesus thinks, oh, I'll take an opportunity here. I'll carry on teaching. Reading from verse chapter 7. As they went away, so no longer is there John the Baptist or any of John the Baptist's disciples. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Interesting choice of topic, Jesus, considering John's not there. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Basically, he's asking this question. Time and again, all these people had gone out to see John the Baptist. He was a bit eccentric. He was a bit far out. And he did some weird stuff. And he hung out in some weird places. And people would go out. They'd be so like there's something about John that they'd travel to go and see him. So Jesus says, what did you go out there to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Was it a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send your messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And you've got this language of um, there was prophecies that there would be someone who comes like Elijah, who was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, not my son, the famous one. 
and, and he would, he would, there'd be someone who would come and it would be like Elijah. Not Elijah himself, but like him. And he would prepare the way of the Messiah. And here Jesus is saying, that's John. And then he says this. Truly I say to you, these are staggering words. I want you to hear these. This is what Jesus says. And I've said this before. The best bits of my messages are always the bits where I read scripture because it can't be wrong. This is what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, so that's all of us here and every human ever, ever, and any human ever to come, just so you've got that in your mind, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater. Not Mary, not Pele, not Nelson Mandela, not your hero, not your mum, not your dad, not your friends. No one. Not Moses, not Abraham, not David, not Peter, not Paul. John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. And there's a lot of detail there, and I can't cover everything because we'd be here all day. But there's some straightforward things, but the overarching point is what I want to focus on, and that's verse 11. And I've already kind of emphasized that, but it it seems to center around this statement when he says, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So this side of heaven, of all humans ever, John the Baptist is the greatest, what Jesus says. But then he says, if there's someone in heaven, even if they're the least person ever, if they're with Jesus, then they're greater than John the Baptist. So the greatest thing of earth pales into insignificance in terms of being in glory with Jesus. Like it's far better to be there with him than it is to be here, is what Jesus is saying. It's far greater to be with, in heaven than to not be. But this side of heaven, John, is the greatest. And uh, Jesus' way of determining greatness is different to our way of determining greatness. I hope you can see that. Because like, I think if you were to think yourself, who's the greatest person ever to live, discounting Jesus, you'd all have different ideas. You'd all have, well, like Mother Teresa, she was a real hero. Or, you know, there's lots of people as you look back through history that you go, wow, what an amazing man. What an amazing woman. What a hero of mine. They did this. They did that. They saved people. They rescued people. They did so much good. And we'd think, great people. And yes, they probably are great people. But Jesus has a different kind of stand on what greatness means. Greatness is found in being with him. John, who is more than a prophet. The reason he's more than a prophet is because he is the chosen prophet who actually sees Jesus face to face. All the rest of them, be it Daniel, be it Ezekiel, be it Isaiah, They don't behold Jesus face to face. As great as those guys are, John's greater. Because not only does he prophesy and say things, he also gets to see Jesus face to face. So what makes him great? I want to just rule out that it's John himself. This is Matthew 3, 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. He's eccentric. He's far out. It's clearly not measured on appearance. 
So often, the way we view people as great is on their appearance. Here, his diet is questionable. His fashion sense is questionable. And for me to question that is quite a big deal. As someone that just basically wears jeans or shorts, is my preference, and like t-shirts, and that's it. I don't really give too much thought to what I'm wearing, as you can probably tell. But it's not his appearance that makes him great. He's not that he's like got model good looks and that everyone wants to be him. But our kind of human condition, if you like, I, I hope, well, at least I think I'm not alone in saying to this, is we all aspire to greatness, I think. We all want to be better versions of ourselves, don't we? In whatever field that may look like, in whatever way that may look like, and it'll look different for all of us because we're all different. But we all want to aspire to be something more than we are. And it's really interesting, I've been noticing over the last few weeks that a lot of the language of the world talks about aspiring to greatness. Every weight loss thing about slimming world, weight watchers, you name it, is all about being the best version of you you can be. It's all about you can be Dan or you can be epic Dan with abs of steel. You know, I've got a choice. Do I go for a Burger King or do I not? Like, there's all, like, we're always thrown at us all the time is, you can be the best you can be. And there's, like, all these apps that say, well, I'm going to measure your sleeping so it'll change your life. And you've got this so you can count every single thing that goes in and goes out and all this kind of thing. Or you can have this really healthy green smoothie with, like, grass in it that's going to make you really healthy. And it looks horrible, but they do sometimes taste really good. There's this one drink, isn't there, Dorothy? that is insanely good, and it's got kale in it. Who would have thought that it would taste nice? Anyway, that's on a side. But like sometimes, like, there's all these things, and the language is always, be transformed, be the best you can be, you're meant for greatness. That's what greatness looks like in the world's eyes. It's all about appearance. It's all about stature. And it actually promotes this this culture of always trying to outperform and be better than somebody else. I don't know if you've noticed that. That's what it's all about. It's all about outperforming and being better than other people. If I'm the best version of me, then I'm better than somebody else. And what that does is, one, if we think we're better than someone else, we get puffed up with pride. Or two, if we feel like we're worse than someone else, we're gutted. We're broken. We're hurting. I can never look like that. Doesn't matter how many kale drinks I have, that's not happening. And like we have this thing and the stress that's all attached to that. And this is this critique is coming from someone who is massively competitive. And actually genuinely starting to recognize that's maybe not a good thing. I, th I know that's big news. It was big news for me yesterday when God told me that. I'm thinking, oh no, I've got a long way to go here. So this is for me as much as anybody. That when we start comparing ourselves to one another as our measure of greatness, there's always going to be someone better. It's never going to be good enough. There always will be. And we'll never be satisfied. I've said this before, but I used to think I was a good footballer. And then I played football once with Gavin McCann. Now, you've probably never heard of Gavin McCann, because on match of the day, he looked rubbish. Like, and I mean, like, he would miss the goal from a yard out. And he played for Aston Villa, I think, so he was never going to be, like, a top-quality footballer. 
He never donned the red of Liverpool. And uh, I thought players like Gavin McCann and Raheem Sterling and players like that, they're just rubbish. And yet, I once played football. For some reason, I went out to play with my mates. I must have been like 15, 16. And he was on my local playing field with a couple of mates. And it was definitely Gavin McCann because I recognised him off match of the day. And so we had like a five-a-side game with him. He was unbelievable. Like, I've never seen somebody play football like that before. Like, the ball never left his feet. And he's not like, he's not Brazilian. I think he was from Ireland. Or Scotland. Or England. Just covering off all the bases. Just in case. He wasn't very good on TV. But he was phenomenal. And I thought I was an okay footballer. Well, turns out, I wasn't. And even the worst players on TV are phenomenal. And we're going to have this constant restlessness when we're comparing ourselves to one another until we're front and centre. Because we can always have more fitness, more money, more stuff, more followers on Twitter or whatever, but it's never going to be enough. And yet John doesn't have any of that. He doesn't have any of that. And yet he's described as the greatest ever. He's probably not good at sport. He doesn't seem to have a lot of money. His taste in food is questionable. He doesn't seem to have a lot of stuff. But I tell you what he does do. He has his eyes on Jesus. So he doesn't have all that stuff, but his eyes are on Jesus. And to Jesus, that equates as greatness. Everything else pales into insignificance compared to knowing the worth of Jesus. Check out this, John chapter 1, I read it earlier, but part of John chapter 1, which is not written by John the Baptist, but the disciple John, is this incredible opening chapter of John where he's talking about Jesus has always been, he will always be, he's the creator, he's the word, he's everything. And sandwiched in the middle of this extraordinary text are these verses about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. You've got this amazing passage about Jesus, sandwiched in the middle, John the Baptist. All we know of John the Baptist at this point is this. He wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. That equates greatness in the eyes of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That he wasn't the light, he wasn't anybody. But his life was about somebody. And that equaled greatness. He himself says this in John 3.30, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's what John the Baptist says. He must increase, I must decrease. We all want greatness, I think. I think we do. I think we'd be lying if we said we didn't. But I think the path to true greatness is to realize, firstly, that we're not. And that sounds like a complete contradiction. But to realize that we're not. To realize, actually, there is one who is great. And then to give our lives to live for his fame. John was consistent in his approach. He wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. Eccentric, yes. Himself, yes. But standing strong, yes. Not compromising, yes. He carried on in making much of Jesus. So what does it mean for us to be great? I think true greatness is always in relation to Jesus. 
According to God, true greatness is always in relation to him. So if we want to be great, we'll dedicate all that we are to him. Might not look great in the eyes of the world, but it'll look great before God. John the Baptist, the greatest ever. What did he spend his life doing? Talking about Jesus. Spreading the glories of Jesus. The greatest glories are not having uh, attention and fame, but directing it all to Jesus. And isn't that true? All these high-profile people. A guy called Chris Cornell this week was found hanged in his home, I think in New York City. Lead singer of Soundgarden and Audio Slave. I've got a CD in my car. He had money, he had wealth, he had everything. It wasn't enough. In the eyes of the world, he was great. But actually, true greatness is not found in those things. We can aspire for money, cars, bikes, stuff. Fine, but actually, it doesn't bring purpose. And I think there's a, a little practical hint for us because we're thinking, well, how can I do this? How can how can I um, how can I uh, embody this, if you like? If I want to if I want to be great for the sake of God, which I think is a great thing to actually want to do. I think to aspire to greatness, that God will get all the glory, that's a good thing. To aspire to greatness that everyone goes, woo, look at you, you're amazing, is not a good thing. But to deflect it and to point it to Jesus is a great thing. I think there's a, a practical way, I think there's a little hint in this passage in terms of our application, how we can apply it to our lives that helps us a little bit. Um, and... Um, this is something that certainly has sh- shone a light on my own heart. So please hear me when I say this, like, I've got to do this too. <laughs> and actually, those of you who know me really well will go, <laughs> yes, you do. And it's demonstrating the greatness and worth of Jesus in how we communicate, in the things that we say, in the way that we speak, both about things, about the world, but about each other. Jesus gives a counter-cultural lesson here for us. John's disciples have disappeared off. That's why I emphasized that before. John doesn't know Jesus is saying this of him. This isn't flattery. This isn't, John, you're so wonderful. You're amazing. John doesn't hear this, okay? When Jesus says this stuff, John does not hear it. There's no criticism, but instead, Jesus is full of praise for the man. Jesus speaks well of John the Baptist. He doesn't knock stuff, but he builds up. And so often, our world, our culture is criticized, 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 isn't it? And people all over the place, you know, in your workplace, you'll be like, there'll be people that stab you in the back. Or you'll feel stabbed in the back. Or you'll just stab someone else in the back. It's what happens. It's the way our world seems to be. Well, Jesus here behind John's back says, he's the greatest. He's amazing. He's great. How countercultural is that? In, in our conversations, when people are critiquing and being critical, we're saying, no, 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 no. That person's great. That person's amazing to actually want to see others flourish. Because if we're driven to greatness, we're always wanting to be better than other people. But if we're really wanting true greatness, then we're going to believe people are better than us. Do you see what I mean? Do you see what Jesus does there? Like he says this amazing thing of John, but it's it's not to puff him up, but he's speaking positively into a situation. He's honoring John the Baptist publicly. 
a man who's possibly having doubts in prison. But he's honoring him. He's speaking well of him. True greatness is not about being better than your mate. It's not about being worse than your mate. It's not about beating yourself up if people are better than you because you don't have their life. It's about knowing and loving Jesus and being like Jesus. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul, when he says, imitate me, he doesn't stop there. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's about being like Jesus. So often, the way we want to be is, I want to be like him. I want to be like her. Well, we're doing ourselves a disservice. We're falling short. We can be like Christ. And one way you can do that is to be countercultural in the way that we speak and in our language. Beautiful words from Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. But I think it's more than that. It's speak about these things too. If there's some good stuff, then talk about it. Speak well of people. Believe the best in people. Outdo in showing honor. Not flattery, but praising people, encouraging people, strengthening people. And you know what? That's great. It is great. And John does that in the most amazing way. In that of anybody ever, he's the greatest. Yet you don't see him saying, come and look at me, come and look at me, come and look at me. He's saying, I need you to meet this guy called Jesus. I need you to meet this guy called Jesus. It's not about me. It's about him. So here's my challenge. You want to be the best version of you you can be? I think that's a great thing. You want to aspire to greatness? I think that's a great thing. I think we celebrate the successes of others. We help others flourish. But more than that, we be like Christ. More than that, any praise, any stuff that comes our way, any glory or fame that we receive, divert it to the one who deserves it. Don't let it poison our heart, but divert it to the one who deserves it. Point to the hope that we have in Jesus. Because I can't rescue or save anyone, but Jesus can. We have to, you know, if we want to see changed lives, if we want to see transformation, it's all about him. He's true greatness. Let him be your narrative. Let him be the thing you're speaking about and thinking about. Let him be the thing you hope to to change your life. Not the gym or your diet or your new friends or your new job or the amount of money in your bank account. They will not transform you. But knowing and loving Jesus will. And knowing and loving Jesus is what greatness is all about. The greatest of all time was not in the light, but he was the one who spent his life pointing to the one who was.